0: Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of Truthiverse and part 3 of the Afterlife series. Hope you enjoyed the first two parts. This episode is based on a section from Chapter 3 of The Grand Illusion Book 2, which is possibly the most comprehensive exploration of the afterlife, survival, and immortality that has been done today, at least the most comprehensive that I've seen. So the material here flows on from the previous episode's dive into the fascinating out-of-body experience. So with all that said, let's get into this exploration of astonishing NDEs, that is near-death experiences, so please take note, NDE is short for Near-Death Experience. And I'll be referring to someone who's had an NDE as an nde or an experiencer. So keep those terms in mind. So from 1975 to 2005, over 30 years, there were 42 studies covering over 2,500 NDE patients which were published in journals and monographs. And yet despite all the differences in study design and selection criteria, they produced highly similar findings about the content and aftermath of NDEs. Some of the experiences have brought information back from their NDE they could not have possibly known unless they were actually consciously aware while being separate from their lifeless and inert physical bodies. The most powerful cases of NDEs in terms of convincing an open-minded sceptic of their validity are those in which the veridical information is produced through mechanisms that clearly rule out ordinary information transmission. Okay, so now we're going to look at a few examples without going into any great analysis on pro versus con type arguments for the simple fact that anybody with a few active brain cells can see that such cases are not even remotely convincingly explained through the most popular debunker mechanisms such as brain hypoxia, anoxia, hypercarbia, syncope, chemically induced hallucinations elaborate putative conspiracies contrived between relevant parties for no apparent reason and with no obvious motive and no evidence of a conspiracy, and so on. Numerous NDE researchers, including capable scientists and doctors, have thoroughly debunked the debunkers. And given the framework that I laid out in Book 1 of The Grand Illusion, there is no real need to retread that same ground here. And I'm presuming that you've read it, of course. Wink, nudge. Although we might take a moment to hear from Dr. Peter Fenwick, Fenwick is a fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and an internationally respected neuropsychiatrist, a specialist in the mind-brain interface and the problem of consciousness. He's rightfully scathing with the skeptics of the near-death experience. He says, and I quote directly, They just don't have the knowledge. So much rubbish is talked about NDEs by people who don't have to deal with these things on a daily basis. So I'm absolutely sure that such experiences are not caused by oxygen shortages, endorphins or anything of that kind. And certainly none of these things would account for the transcendental quality of many of these experiences. The fact that people feel an infinite sense of loss when they leave them behind. His co-author Elizabeth Fenwick adds that there is no materialistic or reductive explanation that accounts for the NDE as a whole. And I quote, you have to account for it as a package and skeptics simply don't don't do that. None of the purely physical explanations will do. They vastly underestimate the extent to which near-death experiences are not just a set of random things happening, but a highly organised and detailed affair. V Horton's NDE is a case in point. During her NDE, she met a deceased brother she did not even know she had. After the NDE, she told her father, the only surviving family member, about the encounter. And he was flabbergasted because in his own words, no one living knew about it but me. Cases like this are not hard to find. In his book Beyond the Light, pioneering NDE researcher Raymond Moody tells us of a man near death in hospital due to heart problems, at the very same time his sister was near death in a diabetic coma in another part of the same hospital. As he watched the doctors work on his body from the vantage point of the ceiling in his out-of-body state, he found himself suddenly in conversation with his sister who had joined him in the lower astral planes, if you want to call it that. They were having a, quote, great conversation about what was going on down there when she began to move away from him. He tried to go with her, but she rebuffed him, asserting that he had to stay. You can't go with me because it's not your time, she told him. And she then receded into the distance through a tunnel, leaving her brother to complete his own near-death experience. And I quote from him, When I awoke, I told the doctor that my sister had died. He denied it, but at my insistence he had a nurse check on it. She had in fact died, just as I knew she did. Such cases like this are known to researchers as peak and Darien cases for reasons that I'll get to. Obviously, neurochemistry and repressed memories or any other reductive theory cannot explain away such phenomena. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a Swiss-born psychiatrist and pioneering NDE researcher, was told by a 12-year-old girl once that she had hidden her near-death experience from her mother. It had been so pleasant, in fact, that she did not want to come back. I didn't want to tell my mummy that there is a nicer home than ours, she said. Eventually she told her father all the details, including how she had been lovingly held by her brother. Needless to say, her father was shocked because her brother had died a few months before she was born and her parents had never even told her. There are actually numerous such cases in the paranormal and transpersonal literature. We're going to cover a few here. So if deceased acquaintances or relatives are encountered in an otherworldly dimension, they're usually recognised by their appearance, while communication is possible through thought transference or telepathy, if you want to call it that. Sometimes in NDEs, totally unknown spirits are encountered, as we see in this case from Dr. Pim Van Lommel. And I quote directly from the nde "...during my cardiac arrest I had an extensive experience and later I saw, apart from my deceased grandmother, a man who had looked at me lovingly but whom I did not know. More than ten years later at my mother's deathbed, she confessed to me that I had been born out of an extramarital relationship, my father being a Jewish man who had been deported and killed during the Second World War, and my mother showed me his picture. The unknown man that I had seen more than ten years before during my NDE turned out to be my biological father. Surely an eye-opening or mind-opening case. Margarita Nomgaard, a 27-year-old nurse in Breda, Holland, had a serious car accident. She reported that her spirit hovered over her body during a desperate operation to save her life and guided the hand of the surgeon. And I quote, I remember thinking that the surgeon was missing a deep cut that was bleeding badly in a ruptured kidney. I recall floating towards the operating table and coming closer towards him, placing my hand on top of his and guiding it towards the hidden cut. Suddenly he said, ah, here it is. Here's the source of bleeding. At that point, my spirit re-entered my body and my next memory is waking up in the recovery room. Afterwards, the surgeon, a Dr. D.S. Ashari, confirmed that the woman was hemorrhaging badly until he repaired a deep laceration in her right kidney. Now let's go to the famous case of George Rodenaya, whose Russian name was Yuri. George brought back veridical information from his three-day-long NDE. Yes, that is three days that he was effectively dead. During this time, Rodenaya was able to visit his family in his discarnate state. He saw his grieving wife and their two sons, who were both too small to understand that their father had been killed. Then he visited his next-door neighbors, who had given birth to a new child a couple of days before Yuri's death. They were particularly upset that the baby would not stop crying. No matter what they did, she continued to cry. The doctors were stumped. All the usual things such as colic were ruled out, and the medical staff sent the young family home hoping the baby would eventually settle down. While present in his disembodied state, Yuri used his enhanced vision to scan her body and noted that her hip had been broken shortly after birth. A nurse had actually dropped her. He also discovered he could get inside people's heads and see and hear what they did, again nothing new to the mystic or occultist or talented remote viewer. So now Rodinaya telepathically instructs the baby not to cry since no one will understand her. Guess what? She did. She stopped. Having just incarnated from the spirit world, children are often capable of effortlessly perceiving spirits around them. They are still learning to see through their physical eye brain system rather than exclusively through their energy fields. After this stage of the experience, Rodinaya experienced a life review in which he experienced the death of his parents at the hands of the KGB, which was totally new information to him at the time. Eventually, after three days in the hospital freezer vault with cadavers, the doctor from Moscow came to perform the autopsy on him, and he revived as his trunk was being cut into, which sent the head doctor screaming from the scene. Don't blame him, really. It took three days for the swelling of his tongue to reduce enough for Rodenaya to speak, and when he could, his first words warned the doctors about the child with a broken hip. X-rays and questioning of the nurse responsible proved that Rodenaya's disembodied diagnosis was correct. Needless to say, conventional physiological wisdom suggests that Rodenaya should have been irreparably brain damaged due to hypoxia after three days of being dead, but that was not the case. And just as an aside, there seems to be some conflicting information as to which bone of that baby's body was actually broken, whether it was an arm or a hip, but regardless, Rod and I correctly diagnosed it during his NDE and the problem was resolved. So most staggering of all are those NDEs and deathbed visions involving two or more individuals. In one case cited in Michael Talbot's masterpiece, The Holographic Universe, as a female nde found herself moving through the tunnel and approaching the Realm of Light, she saw a friend of hers on the way back. As they passed, the friend telepathically communicated to her that he had died but was being sent back. The woman too was eventually sent back and after she recovered she learned that her friend had suffered a heart attack at approximately the same time of her own experience. Experiences such as this speak to an objectively existing archetypal structure in the collective unconscious, allowing for shared experiences of the tunnel and other afterlife realms. The so called imaginal realm does not consist of the imaginary, there is a difference. And we might note that attempts to explain the tunnel experience as a Freudian phenomenon have failed spectacularly, despite being promoted by the likes of Barbara Hunniger and Carl Sagan himself. This idea was demolished by Susan Blackmore's 1983 study, Birth and the OBE, an unhelpful analogy, which found, and I quote, No significant relationship between OBEs and type of birth, nor between tunnel experiences and birth. So, tunnel experiences are not imprinted subconsciously by travelling through the birth canal, and people who are born by C-section still have OBEs. Period. We might ask ourselves, can the birth experience really explain the shared NDEs that we've discussed so far? Another amazing case of shared experience details Stephen's and Debbie's drowning experience in a river of North Carolina in the US. This story is documented by a researcher, PMH Atwater. Stephen and Debbie had been smoking cannabis and bored, decided quite stupidly to run the knee-high rapids, which quickly led to their being swept off their feet and dragged downriver. So coming to the water, Stephen found it taking on a golden glow. Time stopped and he experienced total peace and serenity followed by his life review. This finished with an aerial perspective of his own funeral where he saw himself in the casket surrounded by family and friends. Then, as if some benevolent force engulfed him, he was suddenly thrust out of the water gasping for air. He grabbed Debbie's hair and swam for the rocks. And he recalled... As she describes what she went through, it became apparent that we both had the same experience underwater, the golden glow, the serenity, seeing our lives flash before us, floating over a funeral, and seeing ourselves in a casket. The intervention that saved Stephen's and Debbie's lives has all the hallmarks of a demonic intervention, that is, what we might call an intervention by the higher self, as it's known in so-called New Age circles. And some of the features that indicate this are the stopping of time and the emergence of a golden glow in the water, as well as the accompanying peace and serenity. And I get much deeper into this whole discussion about demons and higher selves and this kind of thing, the other layers of the self in the book. These are very rich tangents that we, we don't have time to get into here. There's another amazing case, which is documented in a book called The Fingerprints of God, where Arvin S. Gibson tells the story of Jake and his firefighting crew who became trapped on a steep mountainside when the wind changed suddenly on them. Suffocated from the lack of oxygen, the members of this specialist crew, consisting of 22 person units, dropped to the ground one by one, only to find themselves standing over their bodies in the air. Jake noticed fellow firefighter Jose, who had been born with a defective foot, and exclaimed, Look Jose, your foot is straight. A bright light now appeared and Jake was greeted by his deceased great-grandfather who explained that none of the crew who chose to return to their bodies would suffer ill effects from the fire. As Jake walked back up the hill, protected in a bubble from the intense heat, he noticed that some of his metal tools had actually melted, it was so intensely hot, and yet he was completely unscathed. In Chapter 1 of Book 2, I talk about Daniel Holm, who attributed his paranormal talents, including imperviousness to fire, to the presence of his attending spirits, as he called them. Reaching safety, the firefighting crew gathered in awe and reverence. They knelt in prayer and thanked the Lord, as they put it. In comparing personal accounts, the men and women were astonished that they had each undergone some type of NDE. After rescue, each crew member confirmed the mutual event. Some claimed to have talked to each other while out of body just as Jake did when he pointed out Jose's foot was normal. Separately, each of these claims was verified. All involved had met deceased relatives as part of their scenario and had to choose whether or not they would return to Earth. As we see in so many cases of NDEs, there is a choice given to the person as to whether or not they want to actually come back into their body and resume their life and live their life out. It was Italian parapsychologist Ernesto Bozzano who reportedly was the first to notice that dying people mainly see visions of dead people. He reasoned that if such visions were merely subjective hallucinations produced by dying brains, then why not see living people as well as dead people? I mean, if these visions were merely concocted by a malfunctioning brain, then why the consistency between so many thousands of reports? Why do we not see NDEers having visions of Santa Claus or the flying spaghetti monster or honest politicians or well-informed skeptics or other implausible or impossible? things. Deathbed visions are renowned for producing elevated, even ecstatic, states of consciousness in the dying person. If this was really just a dying brain playing up, wouldn't we expect disorganized thought, disorientation, fear, and other kinds of signs of malfunction or physiological distress? But that is not what we find. In 1961, Carlos Osas undertook a major scientific study of deathbed visions in which he found some very interesting anomalies, including two patients, one who was schizophrenic and the other senile who recovered their normal mental functions just before death. Facts that clearly do not support the dying brain hypothesis of the reductionists. Philosopher Michael Grosso supplies similar cases of this nature in Chapter 2 of his well-conceived book, Experiencing the Next World Now. In his book, Synchronicity, the great Carl Jung tells us the story of a woman who had lapsed into a coma, suffering a genuine heart collapse followed by syncope due to cerebral anemia. And I'm quoting there, That was the medical diagnosis. And she finds herself hovering around the ceiling, observing with great lucidity and bemusement the antics of the panicked doctor as he paced hurriedly back and forth in the room, apparently not knowing what to do. The next day, when she felt a little stronger, she made a remark to the nurse about the incompetent and, quote, hysterical behavior of the doctor during her coma. The nurse strenuously denied this criticism, believing the patient had been completely unconscious at the time and could not have known anything of what transpired. Only when she described in full detail what had happened during the coma, was the nurse obliged to admit that the patient had perceived the events exactly as they happened. The doctor was panicking and pacing. Everything she saw in her out-of-body state was accurate. To Jung, it was remarkable that, quote, it was not an immediate perception of the situation through indirect or unconscious observation, but that she saw the whole situation from above. And this is the case with many NDEs. Jung himself experienced an NDE in 1944 in which he found himself rising rapidly to a point far above the earth, which I comment on in detail in book 2. In the end, he was actually genuinely annoyed and angered at being revived. Over time, doctors have learned to be mindful of their language while operating on anaesthetised patients. As Margaret Waite tells us in the Mystic Sciences, at least one doctor spent several uncomfortable weeks baffled by why his usually very friendly overweight patient suddenly cooled towards him post-operation. Eventually, he questioned her directly, much to his own resulting embarrassment, and I quote, After making an abdominal incision through many excess layers of fat, he had said wryly to his assistant, Now let's get a stepladder and climb down there. The woman floating above the bed consciously had apparently heard every word of this. Researcher F. Gordon Green has suggested that since more of the room is visible from the corner of the ceiling in a single glance than from any other point, It isn't surprising that so many people find themselves in this location during an NDE. Atwater adds that three quarters of her database, consisting of adults and children, reported going either to the left ceiling corner or hovering to the left of their body. Furthermore, nurses in critical care units have noted that between 80 and 90% of their patients see spirit visitors manifesting to the left. Hospice volunteers and medical staff have made the same observation. It seems likely that there is a partly neurological basis for this pattern. In Many Lives, Many Masters, hypnotherapist Dr. Brian Weiss shares the following true story. A man named Jacob had been hit by a motorcycle in Holland in 1975, whereupon he experienced himself viewing the scene of the accident and his broken body from an aerial perspective. He became aware of a golden light that he moved towards, but was told it was not his time to cross over by a monk wearing a brown robe. The monk foretold of several future events that would come to pass in Jacob's life, all of which did. But that wasn't even the strangest part of his whole encounter. In 1980, Jacob, who was Jewish, was traveling in Israel and stopped to pray at a mosque used by Muslims and Jews. As he went to leave, an old Muslim man came up to him and said, You are different from the others. They rarely sit down to pray with us. The old man paused for a moment, looking closely at Jacob before continuing. You have met the monk. Do not forget what he has told you. While involved in thanatology, Dr. Stan Groff visited a doctor at a Miami hospital who told him about the NDE of a Cuban immigrant woman who had a heart attack and a classic OBE. She found herself back in Cuba in a house she had previously lived in, but not seen for many years. Her distress was due to the fact that the current occupants had made changes to the house, moved things around, swapped out furniture, and also painted the fence a shade of green that she found totally unacceptable. And I quote from the book, Her attending physician had been able to verify that she had accurately described the changes that had occurred in the house during her absence, including the fact that the fence had been painted an unusual shade of green. The following account is provided by Dr. Van Lommel. It's part of the report from a nurse from a coronary care unit regarding a 44-year-old cyanotic and comatose man brought into the unit, who needed his dentures removed as staff prepped to revive him. Only after more than a week do I meet again with the patient who is by now back on the cardiac ward. The moment he sees me, he says, Oh, that nurse knows where my dentures are. I'm very surprised. Then he elucidates. You were there when I was brought into hospital and you took my dentures out of my mouth and put them onto that cart. It had all these bottles on it and there was this sliding drawer underneath and there you put my teeth. I was especially amazed because I remembered this happening while the man was in deep coma and in the process of CPR. It appeared that the man had seen himself lying in bed, that he had perceived from above how nurses and doctors had been busy with the CPR. He was also able to describe correctly and in detail the small room in which he had been resuscitated, as well as the appearance of those present like myself. It's easy to see from the preceding material that veridical sigh and OBE perceptions cannot be accounted for by a reductive dying brain hypothesis. We need another explanation. The obvious explanation is survival of consciousness outside the body. The fact that consciousness is associated with the body, normally, and can be dissociated under circumstances including NDEs and OBEs. And it's also worth noting, while we are debunking the would-be debunkers of PSI and near-death experiences, that Dr. Bruce Grayson in 2006 found over a period of 20 years, NDE accounts did not significantly change over time and were not embellished, that is, they were not exaggerated and they didn't change. The accounts were reliable and vividly remembered. Additionally, an important 2014 study by Dr. Arianna Palmieri and colleagues at the University of Padova, Italy demonstrated that, quote, NDE memories were similar to real memories in terms of detail richness, self-referential, and emotional information. Moreover, NDE memories were significantly different from memories of imagined events. In sum, and I will quote, the EEG pattern of correlations for NDE memory recall differed from the pattern for memories of imagined events. In conclusion, our findings suggest that at a phenomenological level, NDE memories cannot be considered equivalent to imagined memories, and at a neural level, NDE memories are stored as episodic memories of events experienced in a peculiar state of consciousness. Thus, an NDE memory represents a memory of a psychologically real event, not a hallucinated or imagined one. This finding dovetails nicely with the accounts featuring veridical OBEs and Psy. As Dean Raiden saliently points out in Real Magic, it may be that some of the vivid and Psy aspects of NDEs emerge so rapidly because they are not then being suppressed by a normally functioning brain. In Book 1 of The Grand Illusion, I emphasised with evidence that the brain acts to minimise and focus our consciousness rather than generating it from nothing. Okay, let's change gears slightly and look at deathbed experiences. In a few instances, or more than a few, people have expressed the feeling that the love or prayers of others have in fact pulled them back from the brink of death in their out-of-body state. That is, regardless of their own wishes or determination to either leave the earth plane or state. And this illustrates the reach of intentional, focused consciousness and, in fact, the power of prayer from a, let's say, a very metaphysical, less objective kind of a place. And I've gotten into all the studies around the power of prayer in Book 1, so I'm not going to get off on that tangent. Let's look at Stefan von Jankovic. When von Jankovic had his NDE in 1964, as the result of a serious car crash which wasn't his fault, he hovered near his lifeless body while a small crowd of passers-by gathered round, some of them trying to revive him. A woman from Tessin with her young daughter silently prayed, first an Our Father and then a Holy Mary, after which she asked forgiveness for the sins of this unfortunate man. This woman's unselfish prayer impressed me greatly, made me joyous and I felt radiated with love, von Yankovic said. He found that he could hear the woman's silent prayer in his out-of-body state and the thoughts of everyone else nearby. In the end, a shot of adrenaline in the heart from a passing doctor revived him and his badly injured body eventually recovered. He later became good friends with the doctor, in fact. The praying woman stuck in his mind too. Von Yankovich, lucid and hovering ghost-like nearby, noticed the woman's truck and saw that it belonged to the family business. The name of the Swiss town was also displayed on the side and he used that information to track her down three years later. When he found her and told her that he was the man she had prayed for at the accident site, they wept together. Prayer was also instrumental in Daniel Brinkley's return from his obese state after being hit by lightning. He felt great love emanating from his friend Tommy, who was begging him to come back to life. As he focused on Tommy, Brinkley felt himself become denser. Suddenly, he was in his body again and looking up at the sheet that hospital staff had pulled over his lifeless body to transport him to the morgue. And I go into Brinkley's story in more depth in the book because it is definitely worth investigating in more detail. But back to prayer. Sometimes prayer is less welcome. Intention is everything. One woman's elderly, dying aunt told her that she'd been over to the beyond, the other side, and wanted to stay in that beautiful place, but the prayers of her family were holding her on the earth plane. After they stopped praying, her aunt died shortly thereafter and was able to move on. Sometimes deathbed visions can be just as startling as others, some even featuring mysterious music heard by multiple witnesses. Margot Gray's study of NDEs found that 11% reported hearing such music in their NDE. In another case, a woman who was in the last seconds of her life looked up and in the presence of witnesses said, There's Bill. He's calling me in a clear, loud voice. And she then immediately passed away. It turned out that Bill was her brother who had died the week before, and she had never been informed of the death. In yet another such case, a dying woman spoke of seeing three of her brothers, each long since dead, though she also recognized a fourth brother in her vision, a brother who was thought to still be living in India. A while later, the family received letters from India announcing the death of the fourth brother, who had died before his sister's deathbed vision. Michael Grosso comments that everything looks as if the fourth brother died, joined his three dead brothers, and that altogether they escorted their dying sister into the next world. Similar such cases occur with children and their siblings whose deaths had occurred so recently that they had not yet been told of the news. There are also cases of deathbed visions that were shared and not just experienced by one person alone. Carlos Sosa's extensive study of the deathbed observations of physicians and nurses from 1961 was a monumental study of the dying based on a large questionnaire survey. 10,000 questionnaires about deathbed observations were sent out, half of them to physicians and half to nurses. Less than 700 surveys were actually returned and filled out, and on those detailed analyses were performed. In all, some 35,000 deathbed observations have been reported. The results were published by OSIS in Deathbed Observations by physicians and nurses. OSIS found that about 10% of dying patients appeared to be conscious in the hour preceding death. Surprisingly enough, fear was not the dominant emotion in these individuals, according to the physicians and nurses in the sample. They indicated that discomfort, pain, and even indifference were more frequent. It was estimated that about 1 in 20 dying people showed signs of elation. A surprising finding in this research was the high incidence of visions with a predominantly non-human content. They were approximately ten times more frequent than one would expect in a comparable group of people in normal health. Some of these visions were more or less in accordance with traditional religious concepts and represented heaven, paradise, or the eternal city. Others were secular images of indescribable beauty, such as landscapes with gorgeous vegetation and exotic birds. According to the authors, most of these visions were characterized by brilliant colors and bore a close resemblance to psychedelic experiences induced by mescaline or LSD. Less frequent were horrifying visions of devils and hell or other frightening experiences, such as being buried alive. The main focus of this study was on hallucinations of dying individuals involving human beings. Osis was able to support Barrett's and Hislop's hypothesis that dying individuals predominantly hallucinate phantoms representing dead persons, who often claimed to aid the individual's transition into post-mortem existence. He also confirmed the apparitional nature of these hallucinations, since a large majority of patients experienced them in a state of clear consciousness. Their mental functioning was not disturbed by sedatives, other medication, or high body temperatures, and only a small proportion had a diagnosed illness which might be conducive to hallucinations such as brain injury, cerebral disorders, mental disease, and uremia. Most dying individuals were fully conscious with adequate awareness and responsiveness to the environment. This study also demonstrated the relative independence of the characteristics of these hallucinations, so-called, from physiological, cultural and personality variables. The roots of this type of experience seemed to go beyond the personality differences between the sexes, beyond physiological factors such as clinical diagnosis and type of illness, and beyond educational level and religious backgrounds. Hallucinations of dead people involved mostly close relatives of the dying individuals, Visions of non-relatives usually represented living persons. Also worthy of note was the finding that most visions, that is 76% of them, tended to occur within the last hour of life. OSIS later undertook a second survey, this time collaborating with Erlenda Haraldsson, a psychologist and parapsychologist from the University of Reykjavik, Iceland. They travelled to northern India to survey a large number of medical personnel and found that deathbed visions followed the same general pattern as in the West. The two primary differences between the two studies were that people dying in India more commonly reported seeing religious figures coming to escort them into death, and they were more fearful of these visions than people in the West. While deathbed visions are not NDEs as such, they do point to survival and should be considered as part of the wider parapsychological tapestry that relates to survival. D. Scott Rogo pointed out that deathbed visions differ from NDEs in two primary ways. One, the dying patient is typically lucid when the vision happens and reports it in real time, and secondly, their consciousness is very much experienced as in the body. In other words, they are not reporting on an out-of-body form of perception. The first book on this subject published appears to have been Daisy Dryden, a memoir from 1864. This little pamphlet documented 10-year-old Daisy Dryden's deathbed visions of her brother and an entity she interpreted as Jesus. And she was the daughter of a Methodist minister, so that's entirely predictable. And she also reported entities she described as angels, whose appearance surprised her because they did not have wings and looked like normal people. Her dead brother Ali also visited, and Daisy communicated telepathically with him, without think, as she put it. Her contact with the other side left her utterly at peace with the knowledge she was to die and be escorted into the afterlife by her brother. In 1882, with the historical formation of the Society for Psychical Research approaching, Francis Power Cobb published *Peak in Darien, with some inquiries touching on concerns of the soul and body, which contained a small section on deathbed visions. Cobb made the revelatory observation, possibly the first person to do so, the dying people sometimes have visions of deceased friends or relatives who they didn't know were dead. And we've covered a few of these instances already in this presentation. These subsequently became known as peak Indarian cases. Though Cobb's study was flawed and limited, it did spur other early psychical researchers to seek out similar cases and study them more meticulously, including Reverend Savage, a Boston minister who wrote actively on psychical research in the last decade of the 19th century and into the first decade of the 20th. One of his striking peak and Daring cases involved two young friends aged around eight, one slightly older than the other, who both contracted diphtheria in 1889. Jenny died on a Wednesday at noon. Her parents and doctor made a diligent effort to prevent little Edith from discovering that her playmate had died, and they succeeded. On the Saturday evening before she too died, young Edith reported seeing various friends who she had known were dead, but suddenly turned to her father and said, Why, Papa, I'm going to take Jenny with me. Why did you not tell me that Jenny was here? Reaching out her arms to welcome her friend now in spirit, she exclaimed, Oh, Jenny, I'm so glad you're here. Shortly thereafter, Edith too departed for the spirit world. Edith had no idea that her little playmate Jenny had already died. Instances like these serve to demonstrate that deathbed visions can and often do qualify as objectively real occurrences and real perceptions of the dying, even more so when they're shared by a second person or more than two people. Sir William Barrett and Edmund Gurney, to name two investigators, collected several such cases. Some involved the perception by multiple people of heavenly music in the room of the dying or the newly deceased individual. Italian paranormal investigator Ernesto Bozzano published several such reports in 1923. Dr. James Hislop considered these events to be key in the argument for survival, for obvious reasons. In two of the cases featured in Barrett's Deathbed Visions, the sound of the music is compared by witnesses to an Aeolian harp, and other cases describe beautiful, sweet voices singing. Rogo made the salient observation that beings in the spirit world may be alerted to the fact that someone they're connected to is about to transition permanently, and thus meet them on the threshold so as to act as a guide into the hereafter. In contrast, in cases of clinical or pseudo-death, this call would not happen and the ender crosses into the afterlife temporarily before meeting these familiar beings, only to be told it's not their time to die, at which point they're sent back to Earth. Kubler-Ross found that regardless of race, numerous children who claimed that someone was waiting for them on the other side had mentioned a person who had preceded them in death despite none of the children having been informed of that person's death. By July 1982, Kubler-Ross had taught in her estimation 125,000 students in death and dying courses in colleges, seminaries, medical schools, hospitals and social work institutions. Her research and input into the field of consciousness research was vast. Some cases involving deathbed visions also feature other elements, such as visitation by an astral double, as well as heavenly music. A case from 1879, cited by William Barrett in Deathbed Visions, involves a mother and her two young girls, Minnie and Ada, eight and nine years old respectively. The mother and daughters had been visiting her sister-in-law in the country while in the process of securing a new family home. Having bought the new home near London, the mother sent the two girls there with their nurse by train, following herself several hours later. Sadly, that evening, both girls suddenly became ill and were diagnosed with severe smallpox and both died within the week. Minnie transitioned first. The day after little Minnie was buried, the bereaved mother was watching with resignation, Ada's last hours. Suddenly the sick child woke up from a kind of stupor and exclaimed, Oh look, Mama, look at the beautiful angels pointing to the foot of the bed. Mrs. G saw nothing but heard soft, sweet music which seemed to float in the air. Again the child exclaimed, Oh dear Mama, there is Minnie, she's come for me. She smiled and appeared greatly pleased. At this moment, Mrs. G distinctly heard a voice say, Come, dear Ada, I am waiting for you. The sick child smiled once again and died without a struggle. There is more, however, to this story. On the evening of the very same day that they left the sister-in-law's home to travel to London, the same evening the girls became ill, one of them walked into the room of the house that they had left that morning, which is a physical impossibility, where a cousin to whom she was much attached was sitting at his studies and said to him, I am come to say goodbye, Walter. I shall never see you again. Then kissing him, she vanished from the room. It appears that the very much startled Walter was visited by the astral double of the sick young girl in London before she passed. In Grayson's excellent 2010 article on Pekindarian cases, he provides, among other excellent examples, one from hospice nurses Maggie Callinan and Patricia Kelly. They documented the story of a 93-year-old Chinese woman who was dying of cancer and having recurrent visions of her deceased husband calling her to join him. And I quote from Grayson's article here, One day, much to her puzzlement, she saw her sister with her husband, and both were calling her to join them. She told the hospice nurse that her sister was still alive in China, and that she hadn't seen her for many years. When the hospice nurse later reported this conversation to the woman's daughter, the daughter stated that the patient's sister had in fact died two days earlier of the same kind of cancer, but that the family had decided not to tell the patient to avoid upsetting or frightening her. And so, when the daughter revealed to her elderly dying mother the truth about her sister passing away two days earlier, the dying mother relaxed and transitioned peacefully not long thereafter. Overall, in the bulk of near-death experiences, the vast majority of people or spirits encountered are dead, as we have noted. They're not always known to have been deceased either, in some cases. In 2001, Emily Kelly published a report on 274 NDEs. These were from the larger pool of the University of Virginia's database, which contained 550 NDEs at the time. Of Kelly's 274, 200 of them did not feature encounters with other beings, while 74 did. Only 4%, that is 11 of them, reported seeing living people they knew at the time. By far, most beings encountered in near-death experiences were deceased or others unknown. In 2010, the collection had grown to 665 NDEs, and Grayson, who was also at the University of Virginia, reported that 138, that is 21% of them, included a purported encounter with a dead person whereas only 4% of them included an encounter with a living person. The bottom line is that people having genuine NDEs tend not to hallucinate the living. In Osus and Haroldson's monumental study, they found when familiar people are present in dreams or hallucinations, they're much more likely to be both alive and from recent memory. So there is a clear point of distinction between near death experience visions and the beings who present in dreams or hallucinations. They aren't the same thing. Kelly found that of her 553, 74 of them, that is 13%, featured deceased people, which falls between the 8% reported by Ken Ring in 1980 and the 39% reported by the Fenwicks in 1995. And if you're wondering about your furry beloveds, only two people out of Kelly's 274 reported seeing pets. But that's another tangent. Another significant finding was the relevance of actually being close to death and the increased chances of encountering spirits. And I quote, among 130 people who were close to death, 28, 22%, encountered a deceased person, whereas among 107 people who are not close to death, only 9, that is 8%, encountered a deceased person. Kelly also noticed a correlation between seeing a light and seeing deceased people. 89% of those who saw deceased people, quote, also reported seeing a bright light, an incidence significantly higher than that among participants not seeing deceased persons. Kelly and Grayson were both drawing on the University of Virginia's NDE database for these reports. As of 2020, it included 1,008 experiences, although Grayson informed me not all of them had answered all questions. In an email, Grayson informed me out of 711 NDEs who answered a question about whether they met in their NDEs persons not physically present, 65% of them answered yes. 43% of respondents said they met deceased persons in their NDEs and 9% said they met a living person. Additionally, 40% reported meeting in their NDEs a person they could not identify, and 39% reported sensing a presence without actually seeing anyone. Just to quickly comment on the percentage of people who report seeing a living person. If you saw the previous episode on astral adventures, you will already understand that people who are living can dislocate their consciousness from their body and function remotely. So it is actually quite possible that these people having NDEs were encountering, in a real way, living humans who are in an OB state, out-of-body state. Working together, Stevenson, Cook, and Owens had previously shown the light in NDEs was reported more frequently when people were actually near death as opposed to not near death. Thus, there is a clear NDE tapestry of interwoven elements, an identifiable pattern that strongly favours the survival hypothesis. Further thwarting the claim of skeptics that NDE is simply hallucinate who they most want or expect to see when they die is the simple fact that often the spirit who does greet them is either completely unexpected or even unknown to them. In 32% of Kelly's sample, basically a third, the encountered being had either a poor or distant relationship with the NDE experiencer, or with someone who had died before the NDEA was born and had never even known them. As Kelly points out, the expectation hypothesis is strained, to put it very politely, in trying to account for instances where the NDEA meets someone they neither know, expect, nor long to see. Some NDEers get the surprise of their life. And that wraps up this episode of Truth Averse and Part 3 of the Afterlife series. I hope you've enjoyed it and gotten something of value out of it. Suffice it to say that many other interesting tangents branch off from this material, so if you want to dig deeper into it, make sure you get your hands on Book 2 of The Grand Illusion. Thanks for listening. Please share this on your socials if you find value in it, and I'll see you in Truth Network in the meantime. Rock on. If you're a conscious freedom seeker or out of the box entrepreneur who's looking to experience more freedom and time to do what you love, then I want to share something with you that was a game changer for me personally. I'm a member of a community that shows you how to create high commission sales online while making a positive impact in the world. It's called the Freedom Era and it's a place where you're not only learning the most important skill set of our time, it's full of conscious entrepreneurs and respected experts in this realm. It's a place to hang out, learn, grow, and be a part of a prosperity movement for intentional and self-sufficient people. It's actually where I found my way out of being perpetually broke and picked up the one offer that transformed my woeful financial situation. The Freedom Mirror community is a group of disruptors and rebels, people no longer willing to live under the rules of scarcity and fear, people willing to rally together to make their visions a reality. It's not just where you learn the skills, but also have the opportunity to expand into the highest version of you. And so I'd like to invite you to watch a free training by my friend and fellow truth speaker, Brooke, where she'll share the three pillars that helped her and I, and many others, free ourselves and our families and grow a successful business online with leverage and automation. The Freedom Era is your mission to slip to finally create a thriving life. Watch the free training at brendandmurphy.com freedom. I've experienced censorship on no less than four different platforms so far. So if you'd like to help me get my work past the censors, please do subscribe and share it around for me. And also remember to join me on Truth.network, which is the platform I created for our conscious community to connect and gather away from the senses after Facebook, Facebook shut down our page in 2018. So head over there, create your free account at Truth.network, it's T-R-O-O-T-H, and I'll see you inside. Take care.